Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We got free agent signings. We got trades. Oh boy, we got trades. The biggest free agents really still aren't signed. There is no movement yet on Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, but we do have other news. And what I thought we might be talking about today, which I figured would be KD, Kyrie, maybe like DeAndre Ayton, somebody making a little bit more money, kind of like Brunson yesterday, is not what we're going to be talking about today. But we still have plenty. Holy crap, do we have plenty. A lot of it, and, I, you know, I as the news comes rolling in over the days post the beginning of free agency, and obviously none of this stuff is official for like four and a half more days anyway, the the plan, well, you know, it doesn't even really matter. Point is, my original, my original goal here was to kind of work through things chronologically, but that never really made sense because the most important things are always the things you should tackle first. And every day... Because we do this show once a day, and in the offseason, you know, there's no chance I'm adding weekend shows in the first day of July. Happy July, everybody, by the way. We finished off another month. Which, by the way, uh, biggest June by a mile in the history of Fantasy NBA Today. By a mile. You guys are amazing. Like, this June was almost as big as, uh, as last August which, as you may recall, that was free agency month last year. Crazy. Like, I, you know, I don't know what our August is going to look like this season, but I can tell you it's going to be bigger than last August. I'm, I'm just floored at how many people listened this last month. I, again, I, I'm, I'm just blown away. So thank you guys for that. But back to the topic at hand. I had started to write down what, free agents were signing, what deals were coming through. And then I thought, this is dumb. Like, I don't need to talk about, uh, I don't need to talk about Cat signing a max contract extension. I wrote it down, but I don't need to talk about it because his extension in Minnesota changes nothing. We talk about things that have a delta attached to them. And for those that are not familiar with that nomenclature, delta just means change. That just means change. So we talk about things where that it creates a delta in the fantasy landscape. DeJounte Murray trade, KD Kyrie stuff, Brunson to the Knicks, Jared Jackson Jr. stress fracture. Those are deltas. Which, by the way, it's also worth mentioning, We how much did we talk about Kyle Anderson over the last couple of days? We talked about in the Grizzlies recap. We talked about it with the JJJ stress fracture. Slow-mo is in Minnesota now. I can't believe that that's actually the first move I'm talking about on today's podcast. But slow-mo going to Minnesota, I mean, the Brandon Clark hype is going to be nuts, and it's going to be worthwhile. Because he was just outside of fantasy relevant in 19 and a half minutes per game last year. That's a number that has to go up. It has no choice. They don't have enough bodies for that not to go up. How far it goes up is still kind of up in the air because he doesn't provide a floor spacing element and JJJ will be back at some point we assume next season 
And I know that this is weird that I'm diving into Brandon Clark for the third show in a row, but I really do think that this is one of those situations where, first of all, it makes more sense on the Roto side than head-to-head because as JJJ comes back, Clark's role will diminish somewhat, but not entirely because now we know Kyle Anderson is elsewhere. The Grizzlies' other choices at power forward are going to be younger as opposed to kind of having the the veterans they could lean on. Oh, okay, well, Brandon Clark, he's not having his best game. Let's go to let's go to a veteran. Let's just keep rotating bodies through. There just isn't that type of choice. And, you know, we don't know if the line for Clark, if the production line, you can extrapolate to a, uh, a certain kind of growth. But even if he only goes back to what he did his rookie year, which... His minutes this last season were the lowest in his three-year career, and he had, I would argue, his best production because the blocks were up, the field goal percent was up. He was certainly more engaged than last season, whereas something was off. He shot 52%. Like, they just, something wasn't right. So then you just throw him out on the floor. Like, if you even get him to 24 minutes on the scale he was at last year and his rookie year, basically just wipe out the sophomore season for Brandon Clark, then you're looking at a guy who's probably going to be in the neighborhood of about nine shots per game in the low 60s in field goal percent. So now he goes from being a good field goal percent guy, positive impact field goal guy, to great. Take seven field goal attempts and make it nine on the same massive positive number and you got to look at someone almost like a Rudy Gobert that type of impact a Jared Allen who took nine and a half field goals a game and shot 68 percent on them it won't be perhaps quite that high but as you start now to organize your players as to who's the biggest field goal percent impact guys Brandon Clark by the way this last season he was number 14 in field goal percent positive impact Throw another two shots per game in that mix, and you get up to, like, Jakob Pertl territory. Number six, number seven type of field goal percent. Impact. You're never going to get quite into that topmost group, which basically was Jared Allen, DeAndre Ayton, because it was 12. He took 12 shots and hit 63% of them. But Pertl, 62%, half shots per game. That's a pretty reasonable target. 1.7 blocks for Jakob Pertl. I could see Brandon Clark getting to like 1.3. And Clark's not going to be a 49% foul shooter, so you don't have that same anchor on it. But the other stuff, like, yeah, you could see Clark in the 12 to 13 points per game range. Rebounds are not going to be as high as Pertl. Steals will probably be as high, maybe higher. And then, of course, the field goal percent is much, much better. Pertl was number 67 last year. Brandon Clark getting to that range is very attainable. I'm not going to draft him in the sixth round if I don't have to, but look, we'll let this one mellow. We're going to let that one sit for a little bit, put it on ice, because, you know, at this point now, we've talked about it, and now our goal is to make sure not everyone else is talking about it, because we'd like to be able to actually get him in a couple of fantasy drafts. Heaven forbid. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. 
Boo, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Grizzlies could still do something nuts like swing a Kevin Durant trade, and that, of course, would throw all of this on its head. But right now, uh, he's a starting power forward with almost nothing standing in his way as long as JJJ is, is out. And he's not a fast healer from what we know already. I'm Dan Bespers, by the way. I don't know if I said that. I did say it was Fantasy NBA today. I know I did that part. At Dan Bespers on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. I think there probably are a handful of you now. Based on what I'm seeing, again, you track the numbers every day. You can see it. Some of you guys are either longtime listeners coming back after a break, or perhaps there are a handful of you that are newer listeners. Either way, at Dan Bespers on Twitter, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. This show is a sports ethos presentation, the site formerly known as Hoopball which does not exist anymore. We're Sports Ethos. Sports, E-T-H-O-S, is the website.com. Ethos, E-T-H-O-S, Fantasy, B-K, on Twitter. And, of course, check out our baseball and our football coverage, the newest elements here at sportsethos.com. This show is meant to serve as your Friday weekend edition. There's going to be a lot of stuff that comes out over the weekend, and we'll have to sift through it for some early week shows next week. I can't really worry about that right now. I can't. We just we have to just take what we've got. We got to take what we got and roll with it. Um, this is the end of our twelfth week, I think, of the off season. So does this make this off season show number sixty? I give you guys full permission to correct me if I've lost track. But happy off season show number sixty here as we hit July. We are very much past the halfway point of the offseason now because we're going to be talking we're going to talk about fantasy drafts in like five or six weeks at this point i think our draft guide at sports ethos comes out in mid-august we're not far away we're not far away Woohoo! let's talk about the trades and let's talk about a couple of signings today because uh, just talking about Kyle Anderson and Brandon Clark alone, we're already 10 minutes into the podcast. I've, de- I've dedicated way too much time to Brandon Clark, but man, like what if he gets drafted in the 80s or 90s? Would we do it? Hell yeah, I'd do it. I'm stoked about that guy right now. Worst case scenario is is like, a, that's the floor. Anyway. Uh, I want to talk about the New York Knicks before we get into the trades of Friday morning, because the trades are pretty interesting. One of them with the Boston Celtics and the Pacers salary dump. The other one, Kings and Hawks, just rotating uh, veterans for youngs and so forth. But the Knicks 
have actually been really interesting in free agency so far. They've been busy, and they've been able to take care of a few larger name things, at least as far as this offseason goes. There's no superstars going to New York, but we already talked about Jalen Brunson yesterday and how he's set to make a flying leap forward. It's really interesting, too, because uh, we were just talking a moment ago about positive impact field goal percent, guys. Jalen Brunson is that. He was like the 48th or 49th best field goal percent impact player in the NBA last year as a as a shooting guard slash point guard. There weren't that many of guards, traditional guards, that were ahead of him. I mean, if you eliminate all forwards and centers from your sort list, you're left with LeBron, who's, I mean, he's technically a forward, but he's guard eligible. Gary Payton, the second, who's now in Portland. We'll talk about that at some point. Probably not today. Mikel Bridges. Drew Holiday. This is this last season. Positive impact guards. Drew Holiday shot 50% last year from the field. We might we might have missed that in the madness. John Morant was number five. Jalen Brunson, number six. Sixth best positive impact field goal percent guard in the NBA last year. So if you're, if you're looking at how fantasy value can be impacted, he took 13 shots and anyway... The other stuff the Knicks did post-Brunson was basically all at the center spot. And they did two things there. They signed Mitchell Robinson to a four-year, $60 million extension. And they they signed Isaiah Hartenstein to a two-year deal. And I forget the terms. I think it's 16 mil for Hartenstein. It's not that... Honestly, for fantasy players, the terms don't really matter that much as long as it's not a this guy could get moved mid-season for picks kind of deal. Like one of the guys that a, a bad team gives a decent player a little bit of extra money, says we'll trade you at the deadline, we just want to pick up a second-round pick for this, and you know you can make more money by coming with us. As long as it's not that, then I don't really care how much a guy's making. What I care is what his job's going to be. And this presents kind of a weird little situation and not that dissimilar from what we've dealt with on the Knicks before. It was $16.7 million, by the way. I managed to find the number while I was yammering about how I don't actually care about the number. Makes sense, would you, Dan? So Hardenstein, who... Probably deserved more minutes than he got, but the Clippers also like Ivica Zubats, and those two guys kind of serve different different jobs. Was very, very good in what he did with the Clippers last year, which was basically as the season went on, became a, a big man that could pass, steal, block, dunk, Zubats is decent enough in, in a lot of that, in all of those respects. I mean, he shot 63%. Hardenstein Zubats actually saw almost the exact same percentage from the field last year. Um, but one of them is a leaper. And one of them is a passer. And the other one is more the screener. You guys kind of know where this is all going. And they're both fine at the free throw line. Neither one of them is terrible. Neither one of them is very good. They're both like slight negatives. But you kind of expect that from more traditional centers. 
Hartenstein last year was number 142 on the season in nine category leagues and only 18 minutes per ball game. And it's pretty easy to find the games where he played more than 18 minutes on any given night and enjoy them. Basically, effectively what we're doing here, and our good buddy, friend of the show, Jonas Nader, over at NBC Sports Edge, or did they go back to calling themselves Roto World? I heard they might start doing that. Uh, he likes to talk about per 36s. And I don't know if you guys listened to me and Jonas and, and Bogman on The Real Big Three a couple years ago. Bogman loved to pick on him about that. But the point of the per 36 that sometimes gets lost in the, the playful banter is that it it shows us fantasy stat set. How do we extrapolate what a guy would do if given more opportunity. Now, for Hartenstein last year, playing 18 minutes of ballgame, it's pretty easy to look at his per 36s. You just double what he did. Unfortunately, per 36s are inaccurate because as guys ramp up from 20 full bore, I'm going to give everything, I just chugged eight Red Bulls, I'm a, I'm a baseball reliever type performance to, oh, I better not foul out. I got to try to play 30-some-odd minutes. Numbers do have a tendency. The curve, the production curve, tends to level off a little bit. The slope decreases. doesn't flatten out all the way because, like rebounding, for instance, the longer a guy, the longer a guy is on the court, the more rebounds he's going to grab. It just, it just works that way. But some of the other stuff does level off a little bit. So that's why per 36s are perhaps a tiny bit inaccurate. But what you can do is you can look and find the games where a guy got closer to that mark and see how he did. Hardenstein last year with the Clippers, I don't think he played 30 minutes even one time the entire season. So if you're looking for that to happen in New York, you're barking up the wrong tree, and he's still behind Mitchell Robinson. But what this does do is it gives him, Hardenstein that is, a path that he only really developed late last year. It was almost like the Clippers were kind of keeping him under wraps for a while and then kicked it into high gear later in the year and we got to see what he was capable of. Yes, there's a little bit of a small sample size bias thing going on here, but over his final 20 games last year, Hardenstein played 21 and a half minutes per game, which is three and a half more than his full season average, and averaged 10 points, six boards, three and a half assists. Yeah, in 21 and a half minutes per game. They're guards that don't get to that mark. 0.8 steals, 1.1 blocks, 64% from the field, and a likely unsustainable 78% at the free throw line. So factor in probably a little bit of a decrease there. That put him inside the top 85. And, believe it or not, as guys continue to get hurt on the Clippers and weird stuff shook out, over the final 15 games, he was at 22 minutes per game over the final 10 games he was at 23 and a half minutes per game I think that's probably an upper limit if you're trying to figure out what he might do with the Knicks I don't think he's playing 24 minutes a game in New York because you can't really play Hartenstein and Mitchell Robinson at the same time I do think that 20 to 23 in that range so roughly 21 and a half is a fairly reasonable target based on Mitchell Robinson, some injury history, not as much this past season, but some. 
and the fact that the Knicks can now kind of rotate in a couple different bodies there, and Robinson can play and probably go a little harder for the minutes he's on the floor. By the way, Hartenstein in his final 10 games was top 45 11 and 7 with a three pointer, four and a half assists, a steal, 1.2 blocks, and somehow he shot 89% at the free throw line over that stretch. So, again, you know, some of that stuff isn't real, but some of it is. He has a brilliant fantasy stat set. The shame, of course, is that he's going to the Knicks, so he's going to get some love. And he's buried behind a guy that just got a $60 million extension, which, you can do the math, almost double per season what Hardenstein's going to be making. So, it's pretty easy to see. Who's going to be the guy who gets the lead run out there? Mitchell Robinson is going to start. Mitch Rob averaged 25 and a half minutes per game last year. That was almost basically without a backup. That's a number, by the way, that did get better as the season went on. Same kind of thing as Hardenstein. As the season went on, Robinson's minutes ticked up. Over his final 20 games, he played 26 minutes per game, and he was inside the top 70. Over his final 15 games, he played 26 and a half minutes per game. Over his final 10 games, he played 28 and a half minutes per game. So for Robinson, there was this nice push towards the end of the season, but it's worth noting, as always, that... I don't think the Knicks want him playing 30 minutes a ball game. I think they probably want him more in the 26-27 range. Which, and by the way, I think the fact that Robinson and Hartenstein are both on the Knicks now, it does kind of relegate Julius Randle almost exclusively to power forward minutes. They might have some go-small time, but there won't be much of it because they have centers they trust now. Norlis Noel was just sort of never there. Hartenstein, as a ball mover, he's going to be terrific anywhere he went. All right, we've talked about the good. What's the bad in all of this? Well, the bad is that Hardenstein is still a backup. And the bad is that Mitchell Robinson now has a really capable and healthy backup. There's actually a lot, in addition to the fact that there's a lot to like about the fact that someone spotted Hardenstein and said, hey, you're pretty good, man. Come play for us. We'll give you eight and some odd million dollars. Yeah, there's a lot of good there. Dude can pass. He can fly. There's also a lot of bad in this. So we need to make sure we don't get too carried away in our love of whatever's going on with the Knicks because at the end of the day, those two guys are splitting one bucket. There's no spillover there. Mitchell Robinson will never play a power forward minute. Isaiah Hardenstein, in a in the di- most distant dream, fever dream, might get like one minute alongside Mitchell Robinson in any given ball game At most, and probably it'll just be zero. I mean, how much time did Mitch Robb and Nerlens Noel play together? I think it was zero. It's pretty damn close if it wasn't zero. So those two guys, in a best-case scenario, are splitting 48 minutes, and if Randall gets any stretch five minutes, they're splitting less than that. Meaning, what do we actually want to see happen? Even if Mitchell Robinson's minutes plateau at 26, that still means 22 at most for Hartenstein. And as we saw, both of those guys can post fantasy value in the minutes I just talked about. I just mentioned a few moments ago that over the entire season, Mitchell Robinson was actually at 25 and change, about 25 and a half, a little bit closer to 26, and was was inside the top 90. 
So yeah, he could very easily duplicate that. Maybe he even grazes 26 and a half minutes per ball game and maybe he goes gets a little bit better. But at the same time, whatever upside we might have been gunning for with either of these centers is limited by the fact that they're both there. They both exist. They are not figments of our imagination. They are real beings who deserve real playing time. I don't think Mitchell Robinson's going to go very high in drafts this year. I don't know where Isaiah Hartenstein's going to go. He seems like he's developing into a little bit of a buzzy name, but the fact that he's buried behind Mitch Rob in the pecking order, hopefully that helps us a little bit. What I will say is this. Mitchell Robinson, assuming he's the starting center playing about 26 minutes per ball game, he should be able to replicate what he did last year. I think the Knicks will be better offensively. I think Jalen Brunson as a guy that can slash and orchestrate, is going to be better than whatever they had in the backcourt this last year. And hopefully that kind of marginalizes Julius Randle a little bit more as a just a gross ball stopper this last season. So let's say they work out some of those kinks. Maybe that actually helps Mitchell Robinson get a few more dunks, something that's not just a putback. Regardless, top 90 is a pretty reasonable target for him. I don't think I would draft him basically any earlier than 100. But I do think that if you get him around 100, you're probably going to get a baby size value. And you're going to need to cover up his free throw shooting. And then with Hartenstein, I'd probably be looking at him in generally the same kind of spot. He can go top 100 in 20 minutes per ball game, As we saw this last year, he was top 140 in 18 minutes. And as soon as his numbers showed even the tiniest inkling of bouncing up, he rocketed into the top 100. We just did that that analysis but a few minutes ago. The exact number of minutes it would take is sort of, the, the jury's a little bit out, and it, and it depends somewhat on how good or bad his free throws are in any given month, but he was number 97 among all players playing their, 20, their last 25 ball games, and that was in 21 and a half minutes per game, which I think is probably a reasonable target in New York. 10 points, 6 boards, 3 assists, little under a steal, little over a block, great field goal percent, not great free throw percent, low turnovers, no real floor spacing to speak of. Maybe he'll add a little bit of that. Bet the Knicks would love it. It's like, Isaiah, if you can start to learn how to hit a 3 even somewhat consistently, that'll buy you an extra minute on the court. It's a very real possibility that both of those guys end up sitting right in the 90 range at the end of the year. Mitch Robin, 26 minutes, Hardenstein in 21 and a half, something like that. And the last thing I want to talk about today, ah, darn it, I didn't even get to the... I don't want to rush anything, um, but we're also doing half-hour shows here in the offseason, so, you know, there you go. Uh... Ah, oh, crap. I want to talk Brogdon to the Celtics, and I want to talk Kevin Herter to the Kings. I can't do both. I can't do both! Ah. I was planning on doing both. Let's talk Herter to the Kings, because uh, I think we might see more Pacers-related stuff by Monday. And that'll allow us to assess that a little bit more. Kings also brought in Malik Monk on a two-year deal. So we probably need to talk about both of those things at the same time. And that'll be our last topic today. You guys know me. 
I'm actually generally kind of anti-Kevin Herter. Have been. But a lot of that was because he was stuck alongside Trey Young and basically buried, unable to get any kind of consistent usage, actually orchestrating. That will be a little bit different in Sacramento. Not a ton, because De'Aaron Fox is still going to take a bunch of shots, and Demonis Sabonis is still going to take a bunch of shots, so he's still down in the pecking order. But they are going to need Herder to do a little bit more, a little bit of stuff that he wasn't really being asked to do in Atlanta, but for the rare times when Trey Young was out. Am I excited about Kevin Herter in Sacramento? I am not. Because Davion Mitchell is going to be coming off the bench. Yes, they did unload Justin Holiday and Mo Harkless, so they moved some of the other bodies on the wing uh, that might have impeded Herter getting in there. But I think what you, we can kind of safely say now is that for Herter, who... And I do think it's kind of, it's indicative. You want to look at uh, a certain stretch of games. But for Herter, he played 30 minutes of ballgame with Atlanta last year. And he was outside the top 150. Because his steals are low, his blocks are low, his rebounds are low, his assists are meh, they're fine. And some of that had to do with playing alongside Trey Young. So perhaps, perhaps that's a number that actually improves a little bit. But for the most part, You know, he's a guy that can crawl towards the edge of the top 100 when he's having a good shooting month. So you put him in Sacramento, you give him maybe a little bit more wiggle room. Oh, the Kings also not uh, retaining Dante DiVincenzo opened up even more stuff on the wing. So I I think we can safely assume he's going to start and play those 30 minutes that he was already getting in Atlanta. But I don't know that 11 shots goes up for him. I don't think 2.73 pointers. I'm looking, by the way, at the last basically 30 games of the season, which I think is generally a good indicator of what a guy was and might be rolling into the next one. And like he had more three pointers towards the end of the year. Uh, you know, what if he gets to three threes? He's not going to get a ton of steals. We know that already. He's not going to rebound. He has what we've talked about in this show before is kind of a prototypical shooting guards fantasy game which is slightly sub-average field goal percent, slightly above-average free throw percent, not high turnovers, relatively low, because he's not a big-time ball handler, that relies on scoring and threes to pretty much carry his fantasy value. But if you have that fantasy stat set, and you're not a high-usage shooting guard, it's really hard to turn that into value. Look at some of the names at the top of the board from last year and find me the first one who's an actual shooting guard. I'm talking per game from last year. You got to go way down the list. Is it like Paul George, who you could argue is a small forward but kind of has a little bit of that shooting guard fantasy game? He still rebounds better than your typical shooting guard. He gets steals better than your typical shooting guard. But the other stuff is sort of shooting guard-esque. Is it Devin Booker? Maybe it's Booker, who was number 20 on a per-game basis last year. That was kind of your best shooting guard. Donovan Mitchell, super high-usage shooting guard. But that's where they cap out. Donovan Mitchell even more so than Booker, because Booker's actually a decent field goal percent guy. Donovan Mitchell, negative field goal percent, did get a ton of steals, great. 
Let's go even farther down the board. Let's find our first high-usage shooting guard who wasn't able to float their value with a gigantic steals number. It's Zach Levine at 45. It's Zach Levine at 45, and he was good at shooting. It's Zach Levine at 45. That's where the best traditional shooting guard fantasy lines, meaning scoring, threes, a little bit of assist, not great field goal percent, maybe not horrible, in the middle, good free throw. You need Zach Levine level usage, basically, unless you're going to be a big time steals guy, which we know Herder's not. There's just almost no upside for players with Herder's fantasy stat set unless he's going to be handling a bunch of, of, of distribution duties. And with De'Aaron Fox and Damana Sabonis likely to be one and two on the team in assists, I just I don't know how his number goes up more than to like three and a half. So I'm not super excited about that one. I'm not excited about Malik Monk. He's going to be buried way too far down the board, and he made his name in L.A. He had a good season with the Lakers, make no mistake, but he did it when most of the team was out. That's when he was collecting his big-time numbers. That said, I actually like what the Kings have done this offseason so far, kind of working around the edges. They got Monk for scoring. They brought in Herter now to sort of get a little bit younger and space the floor. They still can't guard anybody, but I think they knew they're not going to be able to guard anyone. Like they're not, you're not going to turn Darren Fox and a Demonis Sabonis core into a good defensive team, so now you got to go outscore some people. Go get a floor spacer that can pass like Kevin Herter. Go get Malik Monk, who's your bench gunner. Let her rip. Next week, we'll almost assuredly start with the Malcolm Brogdon trade to the Boston Celtics. Spoiler alert, it ain't good for his fantasy value, but he will play more games this coming year. Other spoiler alert. Who the hell's left in Indiana? Ooh, that's the fun part of this one, folks. Let's have a ball. Have a great weekend, everybody. 60 off-season episodes in the books. Let's make it an unbelievable July. I still can't believe how many people listen to this show in June. You guys are the best. At Dan Bespris on Twitter. I'll talk to you guys over on social. And uh, if not there, then on Monday. So long, everybody. <laughs>